Yeah, if you were paying close attention during the worship, you've probably heard a great deal of what I'm going to say already. So well done, Ashton. Your, uh, your song choices were extraordinarily apposite. I don't think she's hacked into my computer, so, uh, so I think it must have been the Holy Spirit. A very good morning to you all. Today's talk brings us finally to the end of our series on Hebrews. And as the goodies used to say, if you've enjoyed it half as much as I have, then I've enjoyed it twice as much as you. As Carol, yes, penny drops eventually. As, uh, as Carol pointed out a couple of weeks ago, Hebrews is, 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 is a highly theological book. It's a brainy book rather than a hearty one, if you know what I mean. So it's been quite a demanding read, I think. And I know some of us have even wondered from time to time, what's actually the point? But I am convinced that it has been worth it. Because all these difficult themes we've been wrestling with are in the Bible for a reason. In which case we're entitled to expect that as we study them, they will eventually trickle down into our lives and bear some good fruit. Sometimes Bible study is a long-term investment, not a quick fix. If I might just quote once again my old physical training instructor at Hendon Police Training College before particularly tough gym sessions. You'll thank me for this one day, lads. Not today. Well, now that I'm officially a little old man, or at least will be next birthday, I find myself constantly remembering things that I heard in sermons decades ago, which haven't crossed my consciousness once in the intervening years. But whenever I need them, bang, there they are. And I can remember who said them and when. So my prayer for this series that we're just ending is that even the parts that felt like really heavy going will indeed equip us for the years to come. Time spent mulling over great spiritual truths like these is never wasted. And just to review some of them, don't groan. We began with Jesus as fully God and fully human, the creator, the sustainer, the saviour of the world. Yet astonishingly, we had to accept the fact that this glorious, transcendent being became like us in all our frailness and temptations, yet without sin. Then we read about our present status, released by Jesus from sin and death, not directly into heaven itself, but like Israel, into a wilderness experience, where we will be tested, but where by faith we can press through to the promised land. Then we learned about Jesus as our example, our forerunner into the very presence of God. He was described as an anchor, fixed forever within the veil of the Holy of Holies that we can cling on to. Then we're invited to see him as not only our priest and our king, but also the one eternal, all-sufficient sacrifice, better in every respect than anything that was provided by the Jewish law, which he replaces. And following on from that, we were confronted with our own responsibility to hold on in faith to Jesus. We need to be constantly running to the mercy seat of God, not away from it for what Carol memorably memorably described as spiritual foot washing and spurring each other on as well to do the same. Then Phil took us through that long list of heroes of the faith, all ordinary people like us, enabled to do the extraordinary through their faithfulness to God's promises and through his grace. And finally last week, as Jason put it, there's only one way up the mountain. We go as firstborn sons, we go together, 
and we go by faith. And all through this, like the riff in a rock song or the ground bass in an orchestral piece, we heard again and again the author's recurring theme. Hold on, stand fast, don't drift with the tide. So now that we've reached the end of this densely argued sermon or letter, how is the author going to sign off for us? Actually, she finishes up in exemplary vineyard style. Application, application, application. If the letter has seemed theoretical and theological up to now, here suddenly it becomes practical, pastoral and personal. This last chapter does pull together all the theological threads of the preceding 12, but above all it concentrates on how we should respond in the light of those truths. In fact, it contains 13 different pastoral commands. The theologically-minded Bible student might read this chapter as a mere postscript to the meaty stuff that's gone before. But the pastorally-minded, which is to say the practically-minded, can be in no doubt that this is what the whole argument has been leading up to. Okay, we accept all those marvellous things about Jesus, opening the way into God's presence and leading us through the wilderness in this life and all that, but what does it look like in practice? What does it mean in practice to hold on to the confession of our faith? And what about that final injunction last week to worship God acceptably because he's a consuming fire? That was a bit worrying, wasn't it? What does acceptable worship look like now that the old rituals are done away with? Well, if you've been straining at the leash to find out for 11 talks, here come the answers. You might want to write them down. Let's read together Hebrews 13. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honour among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give account. 
Let them do, do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this, in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good, everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written to you, Briefly, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. I think I'd like us to look at this chapter in terms of three practical pastoral questions linked to three L words. What do we love? Verses 1 to 6. Who is our leader, verses 7 to 19, and who is our Lord, verses 20 to 23. First of all, what do we love? These first six verses contain six of uh, the chapter's 13 pastoral commands. And unsurprisingly, it all starts with brotherly love. Uh, To my eye, the English translation looks a little bit limp. Let brotherly love continue. Well, I'm not stopping it. It sounds passive, doesn't it? But the Greek, uh, to my ear, is is a little more arresting. Brotherly love, let it remain. Well, if you've got a brother or sister that you love, you know what he's talking about. These people are family. They can make you laugh like few others. They understand you better than most. and They know how to push all your buttons, that's for sure. They can be the most annoying people on earth. When they screw up, it reflects badly on you, and they'll probably come to you for help. But whatever they do, you love them because they're family. There's a kind of godfather thing going, you're family. That's the way it's supposed to be with each other in the church. You're family. You have to slap each other on the cheek. Oh, you're my brother, and I love you. So the question is, what do we love? As Jason said, there's only one way up the mountain. We've got to go together as family. Verse 1 is about an inward-facing love within God's church. But verse 2 then points outward to strangers. I don't want to cop out here, but I think it probably has to be interpreted within our culture. In first century Judaism, as is true to this day in other parts of the world, there's a much stronger social duty of hospitality to travellers than we're familiar with in 21st century Scotland. But I think in both cases, the challenge to the Christian is to be the most hospitable people in the culture. At a base level, we could ask ourselves in this church, who is it that we talk to before and after a Sunday service? Is it the friends, the fun and the fanciable? Or the unnoticed, the nervous and the newcomer? Who do we invite to lunch? Are our homes just a pleasant hidey hole where we can get away from the the pressures of real life? Or is it a place where we can make others feel at home? What do we love? How can we expect to meet angels if we don't turn our vision outward?
Verse 3 then reminds us to remember those who've been taken out of the game. For the Hebrew Christians under persecution, some of their brothers and sisters have been taken away in the night, some of them never to be seen again. Others have been publicly beaten or driven from their homes, from their faith. As you know, ISIS, Daesh and others like them are doing this and worse in various parts of the world this very day. In this congregation, we haven't yet lost anyone to persecution, but we've lost at least one to sickness and old age. Others, perhaps, we've lost through misunderstandings and unforgiveness. Do we remember these people with anything more than just a pious thought? What do we love? Verse 4 challenges us even closer to home, in our own bodies, in our attitudes to sex. This verse is certainly not saying that marriage is any way more honourable than singleness, not at all. But it is saying that marriage is a holy privilege not to be polluted by extramarital sexual experience, either before or during the marriage. Our culture tends to make a god of our desires, particularly sexual ones. So we hear a lot of talk about rights in this area, and not much about duties. With very few exceptions, our desires, we're told, are by definition healthy. But if you flick on just one chapter in the Bible from the one we are reading, you'll see that James 1, 14 to 15 says the opposite is true of our desires. Everyone is tempted when he's led away by his own desire and enticed. Then when desire conceives, it bears sin. And the sin, when it's full grown, produces death. If you're sexually entangled, get free. Sex in all its forms is not just a bit of fun. Its abuse is a deadly, serious matter. What do we love? And finally, the last two verses of this little section deal uncompromisingly with something else that trips up so many people. 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10 describes the love of money as the root of all kinds of evil, a snare that drowns people in destruction and perdition, leading them astray from the faith and piercing them through with many sorrows. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? Jesus famously says it's impossible to serve two masters. We can't serve God and money. And this same thought is here echoed in Hebrews. If we can keep our lives clear of the love of money and instead be content with what we have, then verse 6, we can truly rely on God's provision, not on what money can do for us. Now, as long as you're generous with it, there's no harm at all in having money. It's just that if money has you, you're in big trouble. What do we love? Part two, who is our leader? In a world where everyone seeks to go his own way, where self-starters are admired, self-expression is desired, and self-determination is aspired to, what is the place of the leader? Yet this second section contains three pastoral commands in relation to leaders. And for good measure, they also get a special mention in the farewell at verse 24. In verse 7, we're invited to remember and imitate those who have spoken the word of God into our lives. To meditate on how it worked out in their lives, their way of life. Imitate their faith. And as Jason reminded us last week, in the New Testament, and particularly in Hebrews, faith has a lot more to do with faithfulness 
to what we're committed to than it does with just believing that stuff will happen. We pray for the sick in this church, not so much because we have faith that God will heal them, as because we are faithful people to God's command that we reach out and heal the sick. In verse 17, we're told to obey our leaders and submit to them, because it's they who'll have to give account to God. And it'll be all the better for us if they're able to do that with joy, not with groaning. Oh, that Toby, for goodness sake. Oh, what a pain. Can you imagine Peter having that conversation with God? Probably, I don't know, maybe I'll get there before you. (laughs) But anyway, the conversation will have to be had. So I want you to do it with joy, Peter. Then in verses 18 and 19, we're also to pray for our leaders. And clearly, the more faithful the Hebrews are in praying for the writer, the sooner she'll be returned to them. By the way, I'm saying she, it's gender non-specific language because we don't know who the writer was. The sooner she'll be returned to them. It's an obvious principle when you think about it that the more we pray for our leaders, the better job they'll be able to do. As Billy Joel famously put it, your mama never cared for me, but did she ever say a prayer for me? I know it's not the case here, but I've been to churches where thousands of words were expended on criticizing the minister and very few on praying for him. If those churches reversed that equation, I think they might be pleasantly surprised with the result. Now, as you've just heard, uh, Carol's and my immediate leaders are our overseers, Peter and Rosemary Sturrock, and it's certainly been easy enough to imitate them to pray for them, and even on occasion to obey them. And the best example of that was the first time they suggested we go on sabbatical. It was quite soon after we started here, and while I was able to acknowledge our own spiritual and emotional exhaustion, I couldn't see how I could possibly leave the church to sink sink or swim so soon after obeying God's call to plant it. But eventually, after trying several times, Peter gently gently but firmly said to me, I've advised you as your friend, now I'm telling you as your overseer, you're going on sabbatical. You've got three weeks to sort it out, I'll help you if necessary, but then you're gone. Immediately, the weight of responsibility just lifted off my shoulders. And I had a wee greet, as we say in these parts, and felt better, because I didn't have to carry the burden anymore. My leader was taking the burden off me. And it worked out okay, because thanks to the likes of um, Andrew and Valerie, it all worked out perfectly well, didn't it? Here we still are. Now, I think that's how good leadership works. Now, it must be embarrassing for Peter and Rosemary to hear me tell that story. And it's more than a little embarrassing for me to stand here as a church leader and teach the rest of you that you ought to copy me, to do what I say, to spend time praying for me. Yeah, that's embarrassing. But the the sandwich form of this passage, beginning and ending as it does, with the way we should respond to human leaders, shows us that, like it or not, leaders are important in the church. We should think of leaders as people that we want to be like, people whose advice we would trust, people we need to pray for because we're aware that they're doing a difficult job. Interestingly, the Greek doesn't seem to imply that our leaders are sort of appointed over us uh, and given a job for life. 
If the wording is any indication, it looks much more fluid than that. The phrase is literally, the ones leading of you. For an old yardie like me, that is a vineyardie, um, this is strongly reminiscent of two things Wimber always used to say about leadership. The one was, if you want to know whether you're a leader, look over your shoulder. If you turn that far and there's 12 people kind of looking over your shoulder to see what you're doing, you're a leader. If you look at and the next person is 100 miles back down the road, you're, you're not, because there's nobody following you. And the other thing was, you only find out whether you're really somebody's leader the first time you say no to them. In the vineyard, we lead, as it were, by consent. But we also try to appoint the leaders that God has pointed out to us. So we shouldn't think of this as a merely human, kind of democratic process. God's will is somewhere in the mix too. And we have to take it seriously, as verses 7 to 19 do. In between 7 and 17, the filling of the sandwich, we find a neat synopsis of the first 12 chapters of the book. And of course, in the leadership context, it refers immediately to the leader of all true leaders, which is Jesus himself. As we've seen throughout the book so far, Jesus himself is unchangeable since the very beginning. So there's no need to go looking, verse 9, for some new teaching. What we've received is absolutely enough. If we imitate and obey Jesus, we're going to be okay. We've been saved by his blood. And it would be ridiculous to follow our families or our friends or peer groups or some opinion former back into some other more socially acceptable way of life. In the Jewish purification sacrifices, the bodies of those animals whose blood was used were burned outside the camp of Israel. Jesus himself died outside the city of Jerusalem. So we too have to be prepared to leave the comfort and safety of the city of merely human constructs, verse 13, and endure the same kind of reproach that he did. And as we heard last week in in chapter 12, all such cities, be they philosophies, religions, comfort systems, sin systems, ideas, habits, beliefs, whatever, will be shaken and utterly destroyed. But we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. When the earthquake comes, do you want to be out in the open field or stuck in the city? Who is our leader? If it's Jesus, then verse 15, we will be outsiders like him. And through him, we'll be able to offer continuous and acceptable sacrifice of praise to God. And notice that this isn't just singing a few songs to him on a Sunday. The sacrifice of praise is not lips that acknowledge his name. It'd be good if we could get some scripture up on the thing. I don't think everyone's got a Bible here. It's not lips, it's, 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 it's not the lips that acknowledge his name. It's the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And that means it's, it's not just our words when we are singing to him in church. It means our words and our actions every hour of every day, everywhere, in every interaction with other people. The fruit of lips. And to underline the point, verse 16 makes it quite plain that there will be a direct financial cost to this way of life. 
Every time we introduce the offering week by week and describe it as a continuation of our worship, we ain't just flapping our lips. Look at the references to sacrifice in this passage. The overall context is the one completed sacrifice of Jesus for the sins of the world, of course. But in that setting, verse 15, we offer a continual sacrifice of praise to God. But in the very next verse, verse 16, doing good and sharing what you have are described as the kind of sacrifices that please God. Sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. You can't divide them. Who is our leader? Jesus gave up equality with God to become human. Then gave up his very life for our sake. We've got to be giving people too. Chapter 12 referred fleetingly, as you might remember, to Esau, who gave up his birthright for a bowl of stew. Well, followers of Jesus are people who cling to what really matters. All our desires for comfort, for selfish solitude, for illicit sex, for more money, for self-determination, etc. All that stuff is going to be shaken to bits. We're investing in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We're called to be a people who put our money where our mouth is. Worship and giving go together. If you worship in a particular church, you should give in that particular church. It's clear. And on behalf of the Kingdom Vineyard, may I say many thanks to all those of you who do so generously. With such sacrifices, God is well pleased. The Bible says so. What do we love and who is our leader? And lastly, who is our Lord? What we love and what leader we follow says more about us than it does about God. But now that we come to the real sign-off, the final blessing, it becomes clear that all we do and all we try to be depends on our God. So who is God to the author of the Hebrews? Firstly, verse 20, he's the God of peace. And we might ask ourselves how this squares with the end of chapter 12, where he's described as a consuming fire. As a couple of my commentaries point out, his great final shaking, the destruction of all that cannot stand in his presence, is actually for our benefit, not for his. He is the earthquake that destroys, the fire that consumes everything that stands against us. So it's not the case that the God of peace will ever make peace with evil. No, the God of peace will completely destroy evil so we may have complete peace. And he's not only the God of peace, but the God of power. Power over death itself. God who exerted his complete control over the one thing that mankind can never control. To bring back from the dead Jesus Here, for the only time in Hebrews, introduced as the great shepherd of the sheep. That's a common idea elsewhere in scripture, but very fresh, completely fresh in Hebrews. Yet it ties in beautifully with the question we asked ourselves just in the previous section. Who are we following? The Middle Eastern shepherd doesn't chase his sheep from place to place with dogs and sticks and whistles and stuff like that. He merely walks to the good pasture and the sheep follow him there. And if you have been following the series so far, you will know exactly where the great shepherd of the sheep has walked to. He's seated at the right hand of God. We sheep are playing catch up, but the shepherd has led us to the mercy seat, to the throne of grace, where the God of peace sits. And we go there, as we've read many times now, by the blood of the eternal 
covenant. So we approach in penitence and humility, yes, but also boldly. We approach as of right, because God himself has conferred that right upon us. He's the God of peace and of power, but also in verse 21, the God of provision. It is he alone who will equip us with every good thing that we need, literally adjusting us in every good thing to do his will. And also doing in us what pleases him. Here are two aspects of the work of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. The one works in us to make us like him, full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. And the other works powerfully through us to produce miraculous signs and wonders. And of course, all of this is through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. P.S. That's the last great theological thought in the whole letter. And of course, it comes in the form of a blessing. But what blesses me perhaps even more than that is that this great treatise ends on an intensely personal note. I wonder if there isn't a whiff of self-deprecating humour in verses 22 and 23. You guys think that was a tough read? Well, take it on board, chaps, because that's the short version. There's a lot more where that came from, and I'm coming to see you real soon. (laughs) Then just a couple more footnotes that speak of real friendships between real people. Timothy has been set free. Yes! And I hope he's going to be able to come with me. And he, he will, If he comes to me soon enough, then he'll get on the same boat as me to come and see you. Say hi to me for the ones leading you. And to each other as well. In fact, to everyone, every believer you meet. Oh, and remember the Italian crowd? They send their love and blessings as well. And finally, grace be with you all. Amen. Why don't you stand and I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we thank, you for, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all the wisdom in it. We thank you for your eternal truth, for your eternal love. We thank you that even at the centre of Jewish worship, let alone Christian worship, there's a mercy seat, not a throne of judgment. And we choose to be those who run to your mercy seat, who follow the good shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus, into your presence, boldly, as of right, by the blood of the eternal covenant which can never be broken. We thank you for that covenant, Lord. We repent of our sins, we turn away from what we've done wrong. And we dedicate our lives to following you from this day forward.